please do join me in going to the Lord one more time in prayer as we ask Him for His help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. And we praise You all the more that in Your Word You have revealed Your Son to us. You have revealed your plan of redemption that is accomplished by your Son and applied to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now by the power of your Spirit and, and inhabit everything that we're about to do. Fill me with your Spirit as the preacher of your Word that I might be useful to these dear people. And I pray that you, we pray, that you would fill all of us with your Spirit and give us eyes to see the truth, and ears to hear. We pray that you would, perhaps in new and fresh and overcoming ways, reveal Jesus to us today. We pray that you would change us by the proclamation of your word. And we pray for these things in your son's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, Christianity is the religion of enlightenment. The religion of enlightenment. I don't know if you think of it in those terms often or not, but it is a true statement. Christianity is the religion of light, of truth, and of understanding. This becomes obvious when you open the Bible and you start reading it. I pray it's been obvious to you as we've even considered the early portions of Paul's letter to the Galatians. What he writes in this letter and throughout this letter is true and it is reasonable. You can follow his, his arguments. You can follow his flow of thought. You can track with him as he makes his case. And just as a, a side note on, on this, whenever you hear people Saying things in the name of Jesus that sound anything but true and reasonable, that's a cause for concern. The scripture, in the way that it has been inspired by God, and then the apostolic teaching and the right preaching of the word of God, as it has been said by many before me, is logic set on fire by the Holy Spirit. It is reason set on fire by the Spirit of God. It is true and it is reasonable. And I pray that that testimony of the Holy Spirit to your mind and your heart is happening. Even as we open the Bible and we look at this letter to the Galatians. And it's good for us to remember that what Paul is contending for in this very true and reasonable way is nothing less than the gospel. It is the good news. It is the answer to the question, how can sinners be reconciled to God? How can sinners, this is maybe even pressing it more deeply, not just reconciled, not just made okay, but how can sinners be righteous in the sight of an omniscient and holy God? That is a question that is worth pondering for the rest of your life. How can sinners... Be righteous in the sight of an omniscient and holy God to the point that they could be his people. And he could be their God. And God and his people can dwell together forever. In perfect harmony. How is that possible? Paul in Galatians is answering those questions. And Paul in Galatians is defending the gospel that answers those questions. Questions. He explains the gospel and then he unpacks its implications for the church. And so that's what we, as I said last time, that's what we're going to be doing over and over and over again as we make our way through this letter. We're going to do what Paul is doing. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up or turn them on to Galatians chapter 1. We'll be aiming to put the verses on the screen for you, but it will help you if you have a text in front of you. Our text for this morning, as has already been mentioned, is Galatians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 24. Though just for context's sake, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1. Listen now to the word of God. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. What I want to do first, before we do anything else, I want to do a, a brief reiteration of some of the context and the major themes of the letter that we've considered in previous weeks and just reorient all of us to exactly where we are in the text. And so, just by way of reminder, I may do this in every sermon, though I'm not 100% sure because there are 24 of them. But I want to put it before us each, each week. I want this to be the lens through which we are looking at the letter. We need to understand the distortion of the gospel that Paul is writing against. In order to understand the thrust of the letter, we need to understand what's the point of it. Why is he writing it? He's writing it because there has arisen in the Galatian churches a false, distorted gospel. In which there were teachers, there were people saying that alongside faith in Jesus, works of the law and the keeping of traditions were necessary for salvation. You may be used to hearing me say that by now. It was not that they were saying that works of the law justified a person wholesale. It was not that they were pitting works of the law over and against faith in Christ. It was more of this subtle Jesus plus thing as we've considered together. It's not that circumcision saves a person. It's that you can't be saved without it. There's a difference in that. And remember, Paul had preached a gospel. It's clear from his letter. It's clear in his other writings. He has preached a gospel of justification. That is reconciliation to God. He has preached a gospel of justification by faith in Jesus. Apart from works of the law. And he has preached this truth of the Christian life lived in the power of the Spirit, not under the written code. That's been his message. And that is the message that is being undermined. And so as we've considered already together, it seems that Paul's opponents are making accusations. They are charging him with things. Three things in particular that we thought of briefly last week, but we're going to be immersed in this again this week, so this will help us. The three things that it seems clear from the letter Paul is being accused of is, number one, that he was preaching his gospel, faith alone, in Christ apart from works. He's preaching that gospel in order to please his audience. He's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles, and so in order to please them, he is removing requirements. He is removing the requirements of the law. He is removing traditions, etc., circumcision and the like. The second accusation was that he got his gospel from man and not from God. We're going to be considering his response to that accusation even further today. And then the third accusation was that he was preaching a gospel that was out of accord with the Jerusalem apostles. He's gone rogue. 
And he's preaching something that does not jive with what the guys in Jerusalem, the pillars of the church, are teaching. So in chapter 10 and verse 1, you see that first accusation, trying to please people. Verses 11 through 24 of chapter 1 is the second accusation that he got his gospel from man and not God. And the first 10 verses of chapter 2, arguably even into the whole encounter with Peter, he is rebutting that charge that he is out of accord with the Jerusalem apostles. And we're going to consider that more in the coming weeks. So where we are today is Paul's response to that second accusation that he had gotten his gospel from men and not from God. That he was preaching some man-made concoction rather than the gospel of the living God. How does he respond? What does he say? So now I want us to take some time together and consider Paul's argument. Let's consider his flow of thought and try to understand what he's saying. So the first piece of his argument is that he got his gospel from God through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's plain and straightforward in the text. And I'm unashamedly kind of taking us back through verses 11 through 14 again so that we can see how he cohesively makes his point. You can put your eyes on verse 11 and you see there that he, he lets the brothers and sisters of the churches of Galatia know that the gospel that he has preached is not man's gospel. It's not according to man. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, by, but I received it from or through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how they know of his former life. He's going to demonstrate to them that there has been a dramatic change in course in his life that is inexplicable in human terms. The only way this course that I have taken... The only way I would have done this is because God himself has intervened and has revealed his son to me. Look at verse 13. He says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So he was a fanatical persecutor of the church. He wanted to destroy the church that was preaching this faith in Jesus gospel. And in addition, verse 14 he says, look, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And as we considered at more length last week, the reality is Paul was a rock star Jew. He was not run of the mill. He was elite. And so he's like, look, I was killing it and crushing it in Judaism. I used to persecute the church. There is no way in the world, humanly speaking, I would leave that behind. No way. It is because God has done this. And has revealed his son to me that I have changed course the way that I have. And it's important that we see this because Paul's opponents are accusing him of preaching the gospel he's preaching. And in particular of removing works of the law and tradition keeping for some earthbound man-centered reason. That's the charge. And Paul is saying, look, zero earthly reasons to abandon works of the law or the keeping of the traditions of the fathers. Whether we're talking about the Jewish side of things, because again, I was crushing it, or on the Gentile side of things, as we considered last week, it's not that the gospel of Jesus Christ is popular there either. I am not preaching the gospel that I'm preaching to please people. If I was aiming to please people, verse 10, I would not be doing this. I would be doing something else. The only reason that I would leave these things behind, a life where I flourished, the only reason I would become highly unpopular with Jews and Gentiles alike is because I have seen through a revelation of Jesus Christ that this is God's gospel and that it does not include the keeping of the law or the observance of tradition. So Paul, as we said last week, straightforwardly, has come to know from God that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus apart from works of the law. That's the first piece of his argument. The second piece of his argument in response to this charge, Paul, you're preaching a man-made gospel, is what he's going to make in verses 15 through 24. He's going to be very clear, redundantly so, that he did not consult with any man. He did not consult with any group of men as it pertains to the gospel, but that Jesus revealed himself to him, that God revealed his son to me. And I preach the gospel that I'm preaching. I didn't consult with anybody. And I've been quite independent for years from any of the Judean churches even. So we're going to examine what he has to say. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, that's God, was pleased to reveal his son to me 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see it here. I did not immediately consult with anyone. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, Peter and James and the eleven and the like. He did not do that. The point that he's making is that he is independent from them. He is highlighting the immediate call of God on his life. Now, none of this means, just really quickly, and we'll consider this next time, none of this means that what he's teaching is out of accord with what Peter and James and the other apostles are teaching. He is just simply aiming to illustrate the fact that he was not dependent upon them or any other human in order to learn the gospel that he's preaching. We know from Acts chapter 9 that the Lord sent a man named Ananias. After Paul, we thought about his conversion last week. We even read it during the service. When he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, he's knocked off of his horse. He's blinded. And Christ speaks with him and reveals himself in the gospel to Paul. He can't see. He's waiting for a man to come named Ananias. The Lord sends a man named Ananias to go and restore Paul's sight by the laying on of hands and prayer. And then also we know that Paul was baptized by Ananias. But then after that, we know in Acts chapter 9 that Paul immediately began preaching the gospel. I mean, like the verses right after his conversion, his restoration of sight and his baptism, he's preaching. It's the first thing we see him doing. And the Galatians account here fills in some of the gaps that Luke did not feel the need to reveal to us uh, in his book of Luke and Acts. And so we get some more detail here. That Paul after he was converted and baptized and his sight was restored, he began preaching the gospel nearby, but then he went into Arabia to preach the gospel. And then he returned again to Damascus. And we read verse 18, that after three years, so this is a span of time that's happened. This is not like two weeks. This is a long time that this man this man was preaching the gospel in Arabia and returning again to Damascus Longer than Covenant Baptist Church has even been in existence. Our church is two and a half years old. And he was doing this ministry for much longer than that. Just to give us a feel for how long he was doing this. And he said, so I preached the gospel independently of anyone for three years. And then I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter. And I remained with him for a couple of weeks. And then he didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And the point here is that Paul was only with Peter for a short time. This was not some kind of discipleship training. This was not some extensive like mentorship program. This was just mutual interaction. We're getting to know one another. We're spending time together. And the only other person that I saw was James, the Lord's brother. And then finally we see in verse 20, Paul makes an oath. Again, this makes it quite clear that he's defending his ministry against accusation. You see that? It's in parenthesis, maybe in your Bible. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's just saying that as an aside. I'm telling the truth here. That I got my gospel from God independent of any man. And then I went into the regions, verse 21, of Syria and Cilicia. And then he talks about how he was still personally unknown to the churches in Judea. So he's like, it's not that the people of Judea, the churches, the brothers and sisters there knew me personally. They were just hearing it said of me, verse 23, that the guy who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of it. So they're rejoicing in what the Lord has done. They understand that this dramatic change in Paul's life is a God-wrought thing. That God has done this. There's no other explanation. But Paul is again reiterating the fact that he was operating away from the kind of center of gravity of the day of Christianity. He had received this revelation from God and directly from God, not from people. And he's preaching God's gospel. He's being, in one sense, redundant to make the point. Independence, independence, didn't consult with anyone. I've got it through revelation, through revelation, through revelation. Now in all of this, before we move any further, uh, I just think it needs to be said in responsibility that we are talking about a very unique era in redemptive history when we're talking about the apostles. These were people who had an eyewitness encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. These are the, the people on whom the church is built. So to use the language of Ephesians 2.20, the church was built on the foundation of whom? The apostles and prophets. 
And so we just need to keep that in mind that everybody who lived after the apostles, we all now follow their teaching. Right? So we should not misconstrue anything that Paul is saying as some sort of advocacy for going out and saying your own thing and saying something completely new that nobody has ever heard of. Quite the opposite. He is one of the foundations of the church and even he, as we're going to see in our next sermon together, is teaching a gospel that is in accord with the other apostles. There is unity in their message. So we follow their teaching. What I want to do now, friends, is take some time. Uh, I want to make an observation about Paul's call to ministry. And then I want to unpack a little bit more, at least something that I think is very much underneath Paul's theology and Paul's understanding of the gospel. And then finally, we'll think about an implication together uh, for CBC in terms of how we live together in light of the gospel. So by way of observation, let's consider this together, that God was decisive in Paul's call to ministry. God was decisive in Paul's call to ministry. So you look back with me to verses 15 and 16. You see the language that Paul uses. It's quite clear. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he's talking about God the Father, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He's describing what happened. I think arguably in his conversion as well as his call to ministry. Paul is very aware in the language that he's using, that God was the decisive actor in all of this. God was the one who made this happen. That language that he uses of before I was born, just by the way, is basically identical to the language of the prophets in the Old Testament. Most notably Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Isaiah in Isaiah 49 and other places. They use the exact same language about the being set apart by God unto this call of ministry. It's pretty cool. It's consistent. But God's purposefulness is all over verses 15 and 16. As we often say in this church, it's important to to obviously note that God knows everything. He knows the future. But the reason why He knows the future is really more important. He knows the future because He planned it. He knows the future because He is the purposeful God who accomplishes every single objective that He has in your life and my life, in Paul's life. So God is behind this. It's not Paul's doing, it's not Paul's thinking, it's not Paul's willing that brought him to faith in Christ in the first place. And it's not Paul's doing or thinking or willing that put him into this call to ministry, this call to apostleship. God did that. God was the one, you see him plainly say, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And as we thought about it a number number of times in the short history of our church, it's good for us to always remember that the same thing that happened to Paul or any other person in Scripture when it comes to salvation is true of you. So when Paul says, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me, you can insert yourself there if you sit here in Christ this morning. God was pleased to reveal His Son to you. That you would know Him. That you would see Him for who He is. That you would not know everything, certainly, but that you would know, I want Christ and I need Him. That's the work of God. It's not your doing. It's not because you were smarter. It's not because you were less hardened by sin. It's not because you somehow made the wiser decision in and of yourself that so many people have not made. It was because God, in His mercy and in His grace, in His sovereignty and in His goodness and for His own joy revealed His Son to you. That's pretty special. Your your salvation and mine has roots that grow into eternity. Eternity passed. When the Lord determined He's mine. She is mine. And even with respect to something maybe less significant than Reconciliation to God, when we think about a call to ministry, whether it's Paul's or mine or anyone's, we are foolish to think that this is some man-driven operation. That we just wake up one morning and decide on our own, I'm going into ministry. 
It's kind of ridiculous that we would think in those terms. Because only God can make a minister of the gospel. And only God calls people into ministry. So it's good, it's humbling. It's like, man, any kind of ministry that I ever do, whether it's, whether it's preaching the word or pastoring a church or going over to a, a land that isn't my home to share the gospel or living a faithful life in my workplace and talking to people about Christ and helping other people in a local church follow Jesus. Whatever ministry that I am involved in, God has called me to that. And any good work I do in ministry is simply because God has prepared it beforehand for me to do. It's an appropriate perspective. Paul has that perspective. That God has done this. He is making the point that, look, I didn't do this of my own strength or of my own accord or of my own desire. I did this because God inserted Himself in my life, wrecked me, and then did with me as He saw fit. And I, I want to be sympathetic. I didn't even, I don't plan to say a number of the things that I, that I say in sermons, but I'm mindful of the conversations that I've had with brothers in this room, um, certainly around the elder, elder table. And we'll talk about the language of, of guys saying that they surrendered to the call to ministry. And uh, that's kind of an interesting thing that people will say. Or we'll talk about when, when guys that we're interacting with who aspire to ministry just have decided that, that they're going to be a pastor. The question is always legitimate to ask. It's like, well, you know, on what basis do you say these things? And what do you mean, you know, when you say that, well, I just, I'm going to go into ministry, I'm going to be a pastor. Or I surrender to the call to ministry. On the one hand, I, I want to say, yeah, I mean, I understand what you mean. You may have resisted it for a time. But when God calls anyone into ministry, God calls someone into ministry and it happens. Just like it did with Paul. So it's good, friends, for us to just be mindful of God's purposefulness in Paul's life and in every one of our lives. And that's the point, in part, that Paul is making, that God has done this, I didn't do it. But now, the, the bulk of what I want us to consider is this next piece. So this is an observation that I want to unpack. And so this is probably half of our time, so just to prepare you. It's very clear, and the point that Paul is making in all of this, is that it was the revelation of Jesus that caused him to leave behind the keeping of the law and the traditions of the fathers. It was the revelation of Jesus to him that caused him to dramatically change course and leave behind this teaching of keeping the law and observing tradition. So then my question as I look at the text is... Why and how? That's, that's a massive change in course. Jesus apparently is the reason. But what's underneath that? How is Jesus the reason? Why is he the reason for Paul to leave behind his former life and to leave behind law keeping and to leave behind the observation of tradition? So let's get underneath that. Let's dig a little bit and consider that together. Because it's so massive to the argument that Paul is making here. That God has done this, and most importantly, that Jesus is the reason. Okay. Massively important to Paul's understanding of the good news is a covenant that God essentially made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. When God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them, he gave them rules. Arguably, he gave them law to live by. He told them to, on the one hand, fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful, multiply. They were to be his vice regents, his vice rulers over creation. And then he also gave them a prohibition. He said, you can eat anything. You can eat any plant, any tree, any fruit you want, but you will not eat of that one tree. And so, if Adam and Eve had abided by that covenant, the stipulations of that covenant that God had made with them, sin, ruin, none of those things would exist in the world. Human beings would have inherited from our first parents righteousness, eternal life. But that's not the case. Because we know, as the scripture is quite clear in Genesis chapter 3, that our first parents rebelled against God. 
And so we all then inherit guilt. We inherit a nature that is corrupt. We naturally do things that are wicked. We don't naturally do things that are God-honoring. We don't naturally love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength anymore. And see, the thing is, is everything that's bad in the world is a result of that original sin by Adam and Eve. And a lot of times we look at that and we think, man, God, that was an overreaction. They ate a piece of fruit for crying out loud. And you're telling me that every kind of suffering has come as a result of that? That, that demonstrates two fundamental misunderstandings and underestimations. One is an underestimation of the holiness of God. To sin against the eternal, holy, living God of the universe is no small thing. And so to sin against Him merited this world's punishment, one. But two, the other piece of that is you see God's standard is absolute righteousness or nothing. So the fact that they ate a piece of fruit is not the issue. The issue is that they transgressed God's covenant. They transgressed God's command. It's absolute righteousness or it's nothing. And that's why eating a piece of fruit also merits this world's punishment. It's a covenant violation. The Mosaic Law that comes many, many years after is essentially a reissuing of a covenant of works with God's people. It just has gracious provisions in it. Sacrificial system to atone for their sin, etc. God is revealing Himself to them in very obvious ways. He would do all kinds of things for His covenant people Israel in guiding them you know, to the promised land, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night and all of these things that He would do for them. So there were gracious provisions, sure. But the requirement of God's law as we understand it, in both its original context, but then also, especially, we'll get to this in a minute, when Jesus starts to preach it in the Sermon on the Mount, the standard of God's law is absolute righteousness. It is not mostly righteousness. It's not pretty much all righteousness, but a little bit of unrighteousness. No, it is perfect righteousness. And it's important for us to realize that this requirement still exists in God's economy of salvation. His standard has never changed. His standard has never been lowered. It's absolute righteousness. It's perfect righteousness or you're done. So there is no such thing as keeping the law in measure in order to achieve absolute righteousness. Doing your best or even doing very well will never, could never cut it. And so there is no way for us to merit this absolute righteousness on our own. Again, this is underneath Paul's thinking here. So the key in Paul's theology is where this is going to become crystal clear. In chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this letter, it is crystal clear in other writings of Paul and in the New Testament throughout. But most notably maybe Romans 5, Romans 1 through 8 maybe even we could say. Jesus has fulfilled the law in our place, right? This undergirds Paul's thinking. He has accomplished absolute righteousness for us, and it is credited, counted to us by faith. Imputed is the theological word. Roberta's not here today, so I'm going to say this to her. It, it, it was very sweet. After a sermon two or three weeks ago, she came up to me and she was just... Rejoicing in one sense. And she said, you know, we need to keep hearing about the imputed righteousness of Christ. To which I said, amen, sister. I agree with you. You know, we're going to preach that unashamedly all the time. Because, it's, because it is part and parcel of the gospel. The righteousness that is required of us is given to us. Through Christ by faith. So because of these realities, there's nothing to fulfill any longer. We don't need to accomplish the law in order to be reconciled to God because that's been finished by Jesus. So as a result, Paul understands that there is no room for keeping the law as a means to righteousness. There are a number of implications for this that we don't even have time to consider that we will consider in coming weeks. One of those is that the idea that we could contribute anything to our standing before God is, is just absolutely exploded. When you think in these terms, biblically. 
that kind of moralism stuff, it's eradicated because there's no room for it. Everything, and by everything I mean everything, that we need before God has been accomplished by Jesus and it is ours through faith. So I want us to think for just a moment about Christ on the cross. The, the great moment when his life on earth is drawing to a close. And he says that, that famous phrase, that famous word in Greek that we use as a slogan in our church, and we should, to tell us that, right? He says that. It is finished, he says. Well, when he said that, he certainly meant that the sacrifice was finished. He certainly meant that the debt that God's people owed God because of their sin had been paid. He certainly meant that the wrath that God's people deserved because of their sin had been borne. He meant that. Praise God he meant that. But that's not all he meant. He also meant, he was declaring, when he said it is finished, he is saying that perfect righteousness has been accomplished. That this perfect life that God requires, the fulfillment of the law in every measure, it is finished. And it is now applied. It will be applied to God's people through faith. So when we use the language of Jesus purchasing us at the cross, which we should use that language, it's biblical. Jesus bought us. There was an actual transaction that took place and he accomplished everything we need, paid our debt. He bore our wrath and then he accomplished righteousness. Because I was talking with a brother in the church this week when, when we talk about what Christ did, I can't conceive of a situation in which we would ever get to heaven and Christ or the Father would look at us and say, you know, he, the Father would say, yeah, my son didn't do as much as you said he did. He did not accomplish as much as you said he did. Or Jesus would say, I, didn't do, I actually didn't do all of that for you. I can't conceive of that kind of a situation. So we don't want to cut the work of Christ in half by only preaching the atonement and not preaching the active obedience and the perfect life that he lived. This is essential to a right understanding of the gospel. And this is why we can sing a song like Jesus paid it all. This is why we can say Jesus saves. Because he does. Because he did it. This is why we can say, title of the sermon, Jesus is the gospel. This is how. This is how. Because there is nothing left for you to do or me to do. He has done everything. And what is required is trust Rest, reliance, faith in Him. A turning from myself, my bad works, my good works, my sin, and casting myself upon Christ and His mercy. That is all that can be done. So have you ever thought about the Gospels, the accounts of Christ's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Have you ever thought about why they contain everything they contain? Have you ever thought about why they're so long? Even. I mean, not that they're that long, but if all that really mattered was the sacrificial death, you know, and the resurrection, if, all, if that was all that mattered, then the Gospels could frankly be shorter than they are. But we get more lengthy accounts of his life. Why? Because the Gospels, they are an account of his sacrifice. Amen. And in the Gospels, they are accounts that point clearly to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the one who has been promised. Because of all of this fulfillment stuff. Everything that's been said about the Christ. Yeah, it's Jesus. I mean, that's clear. It's like, He is the Messiah. But then the other main piece of what's in the Gospels is a testimony and an account of the Son of God fulfilling all righteousness. He says it Himself. When he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, what does he say? This need, John the Baptist doesn't even want to do it. And Jesus is like, we're going to do this so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. That's why he came. He came to atone for our sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he came, as we saw earlier, the new and better Adam. He is the fulfillment of the law and in him we stand. He is both of those things. 
And Paul knows that. And that's why he contends for the gospel the way that he does. The million dollar question could be put this way. How could God judge those who had failed to accomplish absolute righteousness? How could he judge them? And at the same time, save his people? How could he do that? And the answer is a legal answer. It is God the Son incarnate, Jesus, truly God, truly man, as our representative, taking our punishment and accomplishing our righteousness, so that God might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So as you're thinking through these things, something I, I want to put on your radar screen. We will often use the language, and, and, I, and we should use this language, it's right that we would say this, that Christianity, in comparing it to other religions of the world, every other one, Christianity is a religion of grace, not works righteousness. True. But what we need to be clear about is that when we say that, we by no means are saying that Christianity is hedging on the requirements of righteousness. Not at all. Because if you, I'm far from it. I mean, if you just consider Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount for 30 seconds, you realize that his understanding of the law, the right understanding of God's law, goes miles beyond the righteous requirements of any other religion. Because it's not just external, right? We're dealing with matters of the mind and the heart and the will. We realize that uh, like this is impossible because we're not just talking about not sleeping with somebody. We're now taking this to the level of a desire, a lust in my heart. We're not just talking about murdering someone. We're taking this to the heart level of being angry with another person. And you're telling me that to have those kinds of feelings is a breaking of the law. That is a requirement of righteousness that far surpasses any other religion in the world. So we're not hedging on righteousness. When we say that Christianity is a religion of grace, it is precisely the grace of God through Jesus that accomplishes and applies righteousness to those who have faith in Christ. That's what we mean. I hope that all of this, I hope this lands on you as something more than like a theology lesson. I hope that you feel this in your heart and your mind in terms of how much you and I need this righteousness of Jesus in our place. And I realize that we're coming back to this theme again and again and again in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And that's okay. It's good to soak in it. Because it is your only hope and, and mine, as we thought about last week. The only ground for your assurance is the righteousness of Christ in your place. It would be utterly insane for you to look inside yourself for the grounding of your assurance if we're talking in absolute terms. Because you, like me, if we're honest right now, or if we're honest on our deathbed, we will know that we could have done more, and loved more, and given more. We will know that we should have sinned less. And there is no way to be comforted other than for the Scripture and for our brothers and sisters in the faith to say, yeah, you, you could have done more. You should not have done those things. But those things were never the ground of your hope. Those things were never where your confidence lies. Those things, yeah, it's fine to consider them, but your confidence, your hope, it was and always is in Jesus and what he has done for you. That's why this talk of the righteous life of Christ, fulfilling the law, that's why it matters. It's all you have to cling to, and it's true for me. So I want to close now with an implication for CBC. I'm going to keep beating this drum as well. Last week we thought about the appropriate distinctions that need to be made between the law and the gospel. Not presenting the gospel as law, that kind of thing. And today we've been talking about the work of Christ in our place. Well, when we do these things, when we as a church have in view the act of obedience of Jesus, who is our righteousness, and when we maintain an appropriate distinction between the law and the gospel, it actually enables us to rightly uphold the law and to rightly uphold the commands of the New Testament as a good guide for our lives. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. 
in anything that I'm saying in any of these sermons. Because lest anybody leave here thinking, well, Justin's just saying that everything's been done, so now I can just do whatever I want to do. That's not at all what we're saying. What we are talking about is a right understanding of where your righteousness comes from, and a right understanding of what the gospel is that then allows us to use the law and the imperatives of the New Testament to encourage and correct one another. It allows us to do this in a way, as I said last week, where we can be very concerned with righteousness and not be legalistic. This is how it's done. We can hold up these things not in a condemnatory way, not in a threatening way. When we're dealing with brothers and sisters in the faith, condemnation is not the tool, right? When we're dealing with brothers and sisters in the faith who may be entangled in sin and have lost their senses... For at least a temporary season, what we do is we hold up this mirror of God's law and God's truth and God's exhortations in the new covenant. And we lovingly implore and correct and plead and pray. And we do this remembering that God's law is good. Because God's law, often the way that we'll use it and bludgeon people with it, it does not feel or look good in any measure. But it's good. Paul says that. Is the law bad? By no means. The law is good. And we want to uphold that. And we can when we understand these things right. And it's good for us to remember that it's really good to obey what the Lord has said. And because of Christ and the fact that he has accomplished perfect righteousness, we are now free to obey. We are free unto righteousness. So what we mean is that we now, rather than being motivated by dread and condemnation, and rather than the law being this thing that just crushes me, that I can never live up to, we don't relate to it that way now. We relate to it in, a, in an entirely different way because we understand that Jesus has fulfilled it for me and now I can concern myself with living as the Lord has said, knowing that I'm in His favor. Knowing that He and I are good. And this, we'll talk about this. We'll say, what are the right motivations for obedience? What are the right motivations for a righteous life? Well, what are they? Love for God. Right? Gratitude toward God. We're concerned, here, here we go, we're concerned for the glory of God. So when we understand that my righteous living, in as much as that can be accomplished, when we understand that's not in the, in the realm of merit, when we're not talking about judgment and we're not talking about condemnation, we now can say, hey, I want to live as the Lord has said, not because I think He's going to damn me, but because I want to make Him look great. I want to obey God because I know what He has done for me. I want to obey God because I love Him. And I want to honor my Father. That's where the motivation comes from. And then we can be honest and real with each other and just talk in like sanctified common sense terms and say, look, let's obey God's law because it's just flat out good for us. Like our lives, every one of, our, of us could talk about the ways that our lives are in shambles. Why? It's because we sin. It's because we're foolish in the ways that we think and do things. And if we live according to God's revelation, things just flat out go better. I'm not saying your life will be easy. I'm not saying that you won't suffer. But things are good in every way that matters when we live according to the Word of God. I'm a husband. It's good for my wife when I live according to God's law and God's commands. It's good for my children because I'm a dad. It's good for you guys because I'm a pastor of this church. It's good for my friends, everybody who knows me. And the same is true for you. In every arena of your life, it's good to live as the Lord has said. And you are freed up to do that because righteousness has been accomplished for you in Christ. So then you can just give of yourself and you can pray and you can labor out of love and joy and gratitude. It sounds a lot better to me than laboring out of a sense of dread and condemnation and walking around afraid all the time that God and I are somehow out of favor with each other. And we can speak in common sense terms. We talk about this a lot when we counsel. You know, if, if 
God's revelation is just so clearly good. If I need to open the Bible to convince you to stop getting drunk, we need to have another conversation. If I need to open the Bible and read Proverbs to you to tell you to not throw something at your wife when you get into an argument, we need to have another conversation. Right? So much of this is just straightforwardly good, and we can live one with one another in these just honest, open, common sense kinds of ways. Because we understand that Jesus has done everything we need, and then we now trust Him, and we go about living a life that honors the Lord, and is good for us and good for others. So all of this, the entailments of, of the gospel, are massive. All of this is wrapped up in what Paul is contending for. And I think we're going to see more and more as this letter unfolds, the entailments for the local church that he is concerned for. The right understanding of the gospel is essential to produce healthy living amongst God's people. So I pray that we would know the grace and the joy and the hope and the peace that there is in the gospel. And I pray that we would all be able to say with joy and gratitude and humility that Christ is my righteousness. And that that's where tonight and every night of my life, that's where I'm going to pillow my head. And that's how I can rest. And that's how I'm going to live. So as we conclude our time now in God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask him for his help. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you and we pray that that you would take the preaching of your word and the considerations that we have uh, undertaken today. We pray that you would take them and apply them to our minds and our hearts. We do pray that as we think about Jesus and his life and what he did for us in fulfilling the law and also atoning for our sin and taking the wrath we deserve, that we would be overwhelmed with gratitude. That we would now, out of joy, because we've been reconciled to you, seek to live a life that honors you. And we do pray that we would live humbly before you, remembering that we are but sinners who have been justified by your grace. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.